0: From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air.
1: Well, first of all, Paul McKee is tone deaf.
2: It was easy for 40 years to say, no abortion, no abortion, pro-life. And now that they got it, now they have to make the hard decisions. Government can
3: be scary. These guys end up in jail for a year, and it turns out that's constitutional at this point. Eric Banks.
1: (laughs) I think I'm appalled by the decision. If Eric Banks could be prosecuted under these facts, then a police officer should be able to be prosecuted.
2: If my wife cheated on me, I find out she's pregnant and it's not mine, I would want out as well. My gosh, it's like um, the law
3: is out of touch with uh, reality. I'm Sarah Fenske. Today is our legal roundtable, and there's a lot to discuss. That includes a host of matters related to Missouri's trigger ban on abortion. When the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, a new state law went into effect that banned abortion in almost all cases. But what does that mean for people in some very specific situations? We'll talk about what the law says and some of the battles over its interpretation. And what about that lawsuit alleging trademark violation over a local developer's plans to use the name Homer G. Phillips? Who has the right to use that storied name? And who might have standing to stop someone if they were planning to misuse it? Well, joining us now to discuss those matters and so much more are three top attorneys. Sarah Swadish specializes in labor and employment law. She was recently with the law firm Sade harper Westoff. She's now in private practice at the law office of Sarah Swadish. Sarah, congratulations on that move and welcome back. Thank you so much. And we're also joined today by Brenda Talent, a longtime attorney. She was previously a partner at the firm now known as Brian Cave Layton Paisner, where she specialized in tax law. Today, she's CEO of the Show Me Institute, which advocates for small government and market solutions for public policy in Missouri. Brenda, welcome back. Thank you for having me. And last but never least, today we are joined by Eric Banks. He's a former state prosecutor and city counselor for the city of St. Louis. He's now in private practice at Banks Law. Eric, welcome. Howdy, howdy. So we will get to Homer G. Phillips, and we'll get to the fallout from the decision overturning Roe v. Wade shortly. But first, we have an update on A high-profile lawsuit against the city of St. Louis. This is a case involving a 27-year-old homeless man who died in the custody of St. Louis police. Now, Nicholas Gilbert had been arrested on misdemeanor charges. Police confronted him in his holding cell. They ended up handcuffing him with his legs shackled together. When he was face down on the floor, they put pressure on his back and his torso, even as he called out, it hurts. Stop. And after 15 minutes, he stopped breathing. Now, when his family sued, the federal court threw out the lawsuit. They said officers did not apply unconstitutionally excessive force. That's a quote. The appellate court agreed, but the U.S. Supreme Court did not. They asked the Eighth Circuit to take another look. Well, last month, the Eighth Circuit issued its second ruling on the case. And once again, they ruled against Nicholas Gilbert's family. Sarah Swadish, what was the reasoning here in them sort of doubling down on this decision? Right. So when the court looks at it, they really look at two aspects of it.
2: They look at, was it a constitutional right when the incident occurred? And then they also say, Um, Well, was it a known right? So one, is it a constitutional violation? And was it a known violation when it occurred? And in this case, uh, the Eighth Circuit said, you don't have a constitutional right to be free from restraint if you are resisting. And they said, that's not a known constitutional right. But even if it was, it wasn't known in 2015. So even if we recognize it as a right today, it's not retroactively applied as a constitutional right in 2015. And so they kicked it saying it wasn't a constitutional right. And even if it was, um, we didn't know about it in 2015 and therefore it's it's not unlawful.
3: To me, this makes me wonder, are they saying this is a right today, that today an officer could not get away with what it appears these officers are now getting away with? Did they address that? They did. They specifically
2: said it's not a constitutional right to be free from prone restraint while resisting.
3: Wow. Now, I know when this case came out, it reminded a lot of people of the George Floyd case. Of course, that happened after this. But once the Supreme Court sort of revived this, people saying, OK, that case was a wake-up call, the Eighth Circuit seems to be saying maybe that case isn't a wake-up call. Brenda?
0: No, and, and part of these qualified immunity cases, and just to step back, I mean, this is an action brought under 1983. It's an action that you bring against individuals who were acting under the color of law, and um, there is a division among circuits in the sense that there there are two prongs which sarah mentioned and one of the prongs the second prong is you know whether the right that was violated was clearly established and that's the one that gets a little frustrating in the sense that you'll see different courts of appeals saying you no know, this is a constitutional right but it wasn't clearly established and then the question is okay now that they've said that, is it clearly established? And you'll see some courts of appeal say, well, yeah, it is, because we said that. But you'll see different courts of appeal going, no, the Supreme Court hasn't said it was clearly established. I mean, there are there's some real issues about how you interpret qualified immunity. And you even have the Supreme Court, in a number of dissents, sort of raising the question, should we revisit this whole notion of qualified immunity under 1983? Should there really be state causes of action toward actions where these things should be pursued and whether that would be more profitable and really produce a clearer jurisprudence for us in this area? Because, look, it's frustrating when you see actions happen that you say, this is an abuse of authority and we don't want it to happen. But there's a balancing going on here. And I think it's a very difficult question to answer if you want to start holding government officials liable for mistakes versus certain pretty clear constitutional violations.
3: So with the Supreme Court saying, hey, Eighth Circuit, we want you to take another look at this specific case. And this was really unusual when they did this, because there weren't even oral arguments when they kind of snatched this one up and said, hey, we're paying attention to this. Look at this again. Is it possible that they are setting the table Because they do want to look at this themselves and and have a national standard. Or am I reading way too much into one simple act on one simple case? It's always
0: a possibility. I mean, in particular, it might be to address the second prong of this test and
3: give some more clarity about how you're supposed to apply it. So could this be a matter then where the attorneys who now have been rejected twice by the Eighth Circuit that the natural move is to go back to the Supreme Court?
2: Oh, I would absolutely. If I represented the the Gilbert family, I would go back to the Supreme Court. You don't need to seek a, a full in banc hearing. You can straight cert to the Supreme Court. And I think this might be the right Supreme Court to get this through. This is a smaller government uh Uh, Supreme Court. Uh, The justices, I think, uh, would be attuned to this issue. I think the justices would be more conservative and they would want to protect officers from uh, uh, frivolous lawsuits. On the other hand, I think the Supreme Court is going to be more inclined to say, hey, government, slow down, don't abuse your discretion.
3: Brenda, you're here from a more conservative perspective. What's your take on how the Supreme Court might feel about this particular issue in involving this Nicholas Gilbert and, and this question of was this excessive force? Um, it's a difficult
0: question to answer, Sarah, because actually um, I, I, I'm very troubled by uh, 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 situations where we really um, can't constrain ab- abuses by our government. I mean, government can be scary and they have a lot of power. And when you read a number of these cases on qualified immunity, I think as a citizen, you're like, wow, if that happened to me, I have no recourse. Yeah. And 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 there can be purposeful conduct, obviously, that that's being protected. So I do wonder whether the court will try to direct this more to the states and say, you need to create different causes of action or we need to revisit this. Otherwise, we may see a reforming of qualified immunity. So I'm not exactly answering your question because, I do, again, I'll go back to saying it's a very tough balance. We don't want to create paralysis of government. And we know situations that can become very dynamic and um, where emotions run high and people can make mistakes. Mistakes are a little different
3: than purposeful misconduct. Yeah, I mean, 15 minutes where they're putting pressure on this guy's back and torso. I'm approaching this just as a citizen. But, but when you mentioned how a citizen would feel about this, if this happened to one of my family members, I'd, I'd be outraged.
1: Eric, what's your take
3: on this very complicated case?
1: What 42 U.S.C. 1983 giveth, the doctrine of qualified immunity taketh away. I think it should be eliminated. I think police officers should be held to the same standard as everybody else. There doesn't need to be judicial immunity, qualified immunity, limited immunity, government immunity. There does not need to be any immunity.
3: And so in this case, if a police officer was doing something like putting pressure on somebody for 15 minutes until they died, in your the way you'd like to see this go, they'd be just as liable as if I was out there doing that to my fellow man on the street.
1: What is the standard if Eric Banks had done it? Yeah, If Eric Banks could be prosecuted under these facts, then a police officer should be able to be prosecuted.
3: That would certainly be a sea change. And I know, as we've talked about on this show, we had the sense prior to this case that maybe even the Eighth Circuit was taking a dimmer view of qualified immunity in some of the cases where it had been. We talked about two different cases. One was St. Louis County cops searched a home with guns drawn after they got complaints that a taxi customer had skipped out on their fare. They had the wrong house. The Eighth Circuit said, OK, you, you don't get immunity in this case. The same court ruled against a SWAT team officer who fired tear gas at journalists as they were trying to do their job in Ferguson. It looked at that point as if the Eighth Circuit was maybe leaning more towards where Eric is leaning. This case seems like they're not going there after all. Brenda, what do you make of the fact that they seem to be going one way and here they're like, nope, you've got immunity?
0: I think part of it is that whole, what, what Sarah was mentioning, when you're dealing with the um, someone who's in custody who is struggling and resisting compli- compliance, the officers are going to be allowed a greater latitude in taking action unless, again, it's pretty clearly established you can't do that particular action. And it's, you know, set in stone. I think that's where the court is, is giving some deference to the active activities of the, the officers. And of course, In the facts, the court spends a lot of time going through a whole rendition of various facts showing people trying to get out of the situation, coming into the situation, trying to constrain um, Mr. Gilbert. And so you get a sense of a really dynamic, you know, Mm -hmm. fast developing. And, And with all these change in personnel, is anyone really
3: monitoring
0: consistently what is happening with the individual in custody.
3: So this may be a lot more complicated than, say, the Derek Chauvin case that we saw in Minnesota, a terrible case. Um, I'm going to open the phone lines. If you have questions about what we're talking about today or you feel strongly about this issue of qualified immunity, you can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. Now, the Eighth Circuit also weighed in on two other qualified immunity cases coming out of Missouri in this past month alone. One of them involved two St. Louis brothers who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. James Hartman and Ryan Hartman were partying in Soulard um, the night that a St. Louis fire captain and his passenger were shot near the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. The brothers were captured on surveillance cameras driving near the scene. That was enough to get them charged with multiple felonies. Overall, each did more than a year in jail and under house arrest. While well, Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner finally dropped the charges, she said that further surveillance footage proved they couldn't have done it. And that's when the brothers sued Barry Bowles. He's the police officer behind their arrests. They noted that the victim had reported being shot by a black male in a black hoodie. Well, these brothers are white. They were also driving a different car than reported by witnesses. They said the officer, ignoring those facts, violated their Fourth Amendment rights. Now, the district judge threw out this lawsuit, and now the appellate court has agreed that this should be dismissed. These brothers can do a year in jail, and the government's allowed to do that. Sarah Swadish, what do you make of that case? Yeah, I find it. I found it disheartening. Uh,
2: we talked about there's there's two prongs to the test. Was it a knowing violation of, of a clearly established law, or what was the violation known to be? You know, was the incident known to be a violation back when it happened? Um, in this case, the Eighth Circuit said a reckless violation is not a known constitutional right. Mm-hmm. I found that incredibly troubling. Uh, the officer who who issued the subpoena, not the subpoena but the warrant for the two white individuals, the it was in the file that the two individuals who should have been arrested or who were suspects were African American, and this officer went out and issued warrant for two white guys. And so the Eighth Circuit's opinion, where they say a reckless violation is not a constitutional right, really encourages. Uh, officers, government officials to be willfully blind to the facts. Oh, we didn't know. Uh, We didn't know about that fact. We didn't know about that issue. And the Eighth Circuit just came in and said, well, if they don't have personal knowledge, then it can't be reckless.
3: Wow, there was a dissent in this case. The justice who wrote that dissent wrote, "Quote: Detective Bowles did not conduct the most basic investigation before presenting probable cause affidavits to the court seeking the search and arrest of appellants." Uh, they list many things he didn't do. He didn't listen to the nine one one calls. Didn't listen to one from a witness who described the shooter also as being a blackmail, Didn't talk to the officers who responded to the scene. Um, didn't review uh, reports. Didn't enhance the surveillance footage. These guys end up in jail for a year, and it. Turns Turns out that's constitutional at this point. Eric Banks.
1: I think I'm appalled by the decision. I just don't find any method to the madness. It's a travesty as far as I'm concerned.
3: I want to go to the phone lines. We have a caller. Uh, Kevin is calling from St. Louis. I believe he has some thoughts on the previous qualified immunity case we were discussing involving Nicholas Gilbert. Um, Kevin, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. What What's your thoughts on this issue?
4: My gosh, it's like um, the law is out of touch with uh, reality in this case, and it's missing some practicality. It seems like um, people who are in custody, and they, uh, a lot of times black people, um, have no real recourse when things just don't make sense. I mean, this guy was resisting, I guess, uh, when he's in handcuffs and face down. <laughs>
3: yeah, it seems like they could have maybe gotten control over that situation if he was already handcuffed and face down
4: well 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 we, we we miss out on the idea of escalation, you know there are so many things that happens between you know z- zero and one hundred that can be done you know it, it it was like in the case of Mike Brown, you know we we kind of make these guys into some kind of you know super villains where you know Mike Brown's turning around running through a hail of bullets at Officer Wilson yeah're mm-hmm. right
0: yeah I mean, seriously.
4: I mean so so but but when the guys when the guys um with the guns the guys who survive <laughs> um uh you make up a story that you know is fantastical and 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 it's one sided then I, I we have to listen to that we have to go along with it because they know that um the 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 courts are going to have their backs it's just it, it's untenable i think and i think again it's out of touch with reality and what we what we're able to know these days. The uh, Kevin, that-
3: Kevin, I want to say thank you so much for that call. It, it's interesting to hear your perspective. And I do think the George Floyd case was a wake up call for a lot of people. It's interesting to see how the law is evolving or not evolving. Now, we've been talking about qualified immunity. Um, this is basically the doctrine that says that if people are, are doing their jobs as police officers, as social workers, in some cases, they can't be held accountable for things that ordinary citizens might be held accountable as a constitutional violation. The Eighth Circuit issued a third ruling this month um, involving a Missouri case that dealt with qualified immunity. This was a lawsuit against the Missouri Department of Social Services Children's Division and one of its social workers. Now, they were sued by a Missouri couple. The father is a sheriff's deputy, and his underage son was apparently sexually abused by a colleague. The colleague was convicted of a felony for that. And the parents threatened to sue the department over the abuse. Well, after that threat, they were visited by a child welfare investigator who said they'd gotten a call on their hotline accusing them of neglect. The family says the sheriff's office worked closely with the Children's Division, and so as a matter of policy, when allegations involve a sheriff's employee, the investigation usually gets transferred to another county. Now, that didn't happen in this case. The investigator stayed on the case. She made a preliminary finding of neglect. And when the family appealed, she was the supervisor, so she could uphold her own rules. Ruling. It was only when they appealed again that a state review board found the complaint was unsubstantiated. Now, the couple sued. They alleged retaliation against them expressing their First Amendment rights. The social worker asked for the complaint to be dismissed. She said she was entitled to immunity. When the trial court judge disagreed, she appealed. Now, last month, the Eighth Circuit ruled, and they said this social worker has immunity for her actions. Sarah Swadesh are you surprised by this ruling? I am
2: outraged by this ruling. Uh, uh, Eric said earlier that he would do away with uh, qualified immunity. I would not. I think it has an important piece in our structure of our police force, and our. I wouldn't do away with it, but in this case, I was absolutely appalled. I would think Show Me Institute would be appalled by this case i'm getting a head nod the the, (laughs) the, is nodding (laughs) the 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 defendant the predator had the mayor went to the county and said or the city said do not hire him he is a predator he got hired anyway he groomed the 15 year old boy he raped him he went to jail for felony sodomy um the parents sent a settlement demand to the county it was being finalized and then, when it was being finalized, all of a sudden, this anonymous complaint comes in about the parents being neglectful. This the the individual defendant, her name was Spring Cook. She did the investigation and she found them neglectful because he had an iPhone and because he was allowed to go on a date with a with a, a appropriate aged person. 14-, 15-, 16-year-old person, and she said uh, she threatened the parents that the the, the father uh, was post-certified, meaning he could be a cop, carry a gun. Uh, she threatened his license. The mother was a teacher. She threatened her license. This is outrageous that you make a complaint against your government for anything, for, for abuse of discretion. For You make any First Amendment complaint, and frankly, any complaint, Fourth Amendment, search, seizure, and that the government comes in and retaliates against you by threatening to take away your child. I, I'm i horrified by this. And uh, the magistrate judge didn't give Spring Cook, um, the defendant, qualified immunity. Eighth Circuit came in and reversed it 3-0. And I think what they – they ne- <laughs> so the, under the two prongs we talked about, was it a known constitutional violation to have a retaliatory investigation? And the Eighth Circuit said, well, that's really too broad. We're, we're not going to – that's not how we're going to perceive this. That's not how we're going to look at claims. And the plaintiff said it's not simply an, a retaliatory investigation. It's a retaliatory investigation with a finding of neglect against parents. I mean, I, I'm just – I'm shocked. But the decision was three zero. I I, I – I don't know where the case goes from here, but if I, regardless of whether I'm conservative or liberal, the fact I think Brenda said it perfectly: we can't constrain government power. This is the worst abuse of of, of government power I have seen in. I mean, I don't want to compare it to other situations, but I think but this, this is bad. outrageous. Yeah,
3: Brenda, and, and you're nodding here. You you share these concerns. I, what I would say, and I
0: hope I don't offend anyone, but if I do, oh well. The scope of government's <laughs> ability to screw over its citizens is immense. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and, and in this instance, okay, if there's an anonymous call of uh, for ch- child abuse or neglect. Uh, that's a mandatory investigation. I mean, there's, so there, there's that. Okay, and so the court d- divvied this up, and they said her investigative actions were subject to qualified immunity, and then her prosecutorial actions were subject to absolute immunity. But there's a part, again, where you step back and you say, where's the common sense involved in this? Yeah. She should have
2: been disqualified,
0: as they do in every other case. Yeah, she should have removed herself, too. I mean, that's the other thing, because her, her conduct— Tainted in my this entire investigation, and it did appear she was vindictive. I mean, it comes across that she was going after them. And wouldn't you want, if you're really concerned about the welfare of the child, for that investigation to be free of any potential conflict of interest? I, I think it's more than appears to be
2: vindictive. Four other agencies looked at the exact same family situation, and they said there's no problem right. here. Wow! Four, even the FBI four, got involved. Four other agencies came in. She's the only one that you know said this was neglect.
1: Eric as Frederick Douglass said about 150 years ago at the West Indian proclamation emancipation proclamation the limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress and this is a classic example of a tyrant getting away with an injustice.
3: So this is a 3-0 decision that comes out of the Eighth Circuit. The judges write, quote, other courts around the country have either rejected the possibility outright or concluded, like we do today, that the law is still in flux. It is safe to say, in other words, that the law is anything but clear. Is this something where the law should change? Well, so for one,
2: that, the, the outcome is outrageous for me. But second, we talked about what the prongs were, and the court didn't actually address whether... Uh, a retaliatory investigation and a finding violates a clear uh, constitutional right. They don't actually address the question. So let's say uh, it happens to my family, your family, this year it goes up on appeal. That district court judge is going to say, well, yeah, they had the same issue in Spring Cook. I didn't really get a, I didn't really get a decision. And so as of now, 2022, this happened in like in 2015, 16. Yeah. So as of 2022, we still don't know if it's a violation, uh, a, a clear violation of the constitutional law. And so therefore, since we don't know if it was a violation in 20, 2022, we're going to kick it. Hmm. So it can happen today because it still hasn't been decided whether it's a violation.
3: Well, this has been a very depressing conversation so far on today's legal roundtable. And I'm sure that I'm going to make a whole lot of people feel even more depressed because we need to talk about what is happening uh, with Roe versus Wade. Now, last month, the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade. Missouri had already passed a so called trigger law rendering abortion illegal. So that went into effect almost immediately. Basically, uh, Attorney General Eric Schmidt could do it with just the stroke of a pen. Now, the state's new law has brought legal questions. Some Democrats say the law is very confusing. They noted that even one hospital chain in Kansas City thought it might prohibit the use of Plan B, the so called uh, morning after pill emergency contraception. They are asking for clarity. Um, and so House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid has asked Attorney General Schmidt for an advisory opinion. She wrote this quote, Based on your public statements, we appear to be in agreement that House Bill 126 did not suddenly outlaw the prescribing, dispensing, or use of birth control medications. Or were devices when the law took effect last month. However, without clear guidance from your office, there remains a heightened risk that a prosecutor with political or ideological motives could bring malicious charges against Missourians over birth control. So far, Eric Schmidt has not issued an advisory opinion or said that he's going to do that. Eric, do you think that would be appropriate in this case?
1: Sure. Just like it would be appropriate for Brenda to issue a advisory opinion or Sarah to issue an advisory opinion or even me to issue one. Um, advisory opinions are worth the paper that they're written on, but not much more than that.
3: So you think this is not necessarily something that would clear up confusion throughout Missouri?
1: By no means.
3: Brenda, do you have a more optimistic view of advisory opinions? Well, they're, they don't have the force of
0: law, um, but I do think that they, when you're looking at The particular law in question, there's an intent element, and you could say that with an advisory opinion, it 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 sort of undermines the intent that the the criminal intent, if you will, contemplated there. But the other thing is that in um, one of the concurrences, I think it was uh, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence, he specifically said that what they're doing doesn't overrule other precedents which do deal with contraception, things like Plan B, Um, and even with Plan B, I would argue that when you look at that particular Uh, medication. It's over-the-counter. It does a lot of other things besides an abortion. It can prevent ovulation, for example. So again, the intent element is not there. But I do think that our legislature is going to have to, to act to give clarity Um, on some of these hard cases.
3: So Governor Parson um, has said he does not want to call a special session for the legislature to do that. He says, quote, Bureaucrats and attorneys don't need to be the ones deciding on what is life-threatening, which is one of the questions people say is is part of this law. Doctors need to have a seat at that table. And frankly, they're more qualified to be able to make that decision than anybody else is. I've got the ability to trust the doctors to make those decisions, and I don't know that there's ever going to be a clear-cut answer on how to do that. People are noting some irony here because this, of course, is now state law where attorneys are sort of involved. they not sort of. Attorneys are involved in this. Brenda, it sounds like you don't share Governor Parson's idea that, that the legislature doesn't need to revisit this at all.
0: I think legislatures across the nation are going to have to visit the issue because there are hard cases. And I I actually think it's going to be healthy for our nation to engage in this kind of debate about what what is protected, what's not protected, where on the spectrum are we going to fall. And you do have to provide clarity because if you're... Um, afraid of litigation, afraid of exposure for a lot of of liability issues, your lawyers are going to take a very conservative view of what you can and can't do. Now, a medical emergency, you know, it could be in the mind of the holder, again, sort of a whole range, whether... Is mental health a medical emergency, or is it only physical health? Mm-hmm. These are questions that do need to be answered, and people are going to want clarity. And you feel the legislature, that's something they should do. This is their mandate. That is that is appropriately their law, because they're the elected representatives, and we ought to be able to hold people accountable
3: for the decisions that they make. Sarah, your thoughts on, on these sort of controversies around what does this law say, and how do we figure out how it should be interpreted? I read uh, Governor Parson's
2: statement about, I trust the doctors, uh, and I snorted very loudly because the first thing I thought was a mask, the mask mandates. The doctors are saying masks. The Missouri legislature says we don't have to. So I snorted laugh loudly. And the Democrats called for a special session. Parsons wouldn't do it, doesn't want to do it. And I thought, you know, sometimes uh, we're the dog chasing the car and you actually catch the bumper. And then you got a bumper in your mouth and you don't know what to do with it. I think the conservatives caught the caught the no abortion bumper and now they're sitting here going now what do we do some some say life To save the life of the mother some say for rape and incest some say well maybe at four weeks some say and now they've caught this bumper they don't know what to do with it Parsons doesn't know what to do with it he tries to kick it back to the doctors um and I think the legislature I completely agree with Brenda the legislature is going to have to come in and now they got to do the dirty work it was easy for 40 years to say no abortion no abortion pro-life and now that they got it now they have to make the hard decisions I I, I And Parsons doesn't want to deal with it yet.
0: Well, and let's also, um, you know, we've got other options that are available in this state because if the legislature doesn't act, you've got two other options. One are initiative petitions, Mm -hmm. ballots that can be, you know, we can all vote on this, or the judiciary is going to wade in and we're going to be back to the
3: judiciary legislating. Well, let's talk about one where the judiciary may indeed have to get involved. The St. Louis City and St. Louis County are saying they're going to put a million dollars each in federal COVID relief funds, and they're earmarking these for women who have to travel to obtain abortions now that it's illegal in Missouri. So Attorney General Eric Schmidt, unsurprisingly, has vowed to sue over that spending. He said using, this is a quote, using hard-earned taxpayer dollars, whether it be ARPA funds or other forms of revenue to fund abortions, is plainly illegal under Missouri law. Eric Banks, plainly illegal? Would you go that far?
1: Oh, I don't think anything is plain, especially (laughs) this. Um, Everybody has to do what they have to do. Um, Tashora has to provide funds for people who want to travel out of state to get this done, Um, but Eric Schmidt has to fight it. And Um, the court will decide.
3: Once again, this comes down to the judges. Brenda Talent, do you think Eric Schmidt has a good case here that that this funding is illegal?
0: I think there are are real questions of law. I mean, you've got the Hyde Amendment at the federal level.
3: That says you can't
0: use federal funds on abortion. Right. And does that track through when they distribute those to municipalities or to the state? Um, And then it's the language of the statute. And I don't have it in front of me, but it talks about assisting or something. And you know that can be a little bit of a mushy word because I'm not sure whether is it directly assisting or is it are you traveling to get counseling which may lead to so I I think that there are some just questions associated with the language which unless the legislature clears it up the judiciary will clear it up
2: Sarah any thoughts on this one well your first question was does he have a lawsuit well that doesn't prevent Schmidt from filing something um, but, no, I, I don't think this is going to be a, a, a Hyde Act violation. They're pr- proposing to pay for child care so the woman can go uh, get the health care that she needs. They're offering to pay for transportation so she can go get the health care she needs. Uh, if if that's the case, Uber and taxicab companies and Lyft are going to be outraged because they're going to get ensnared in all of these. I mean, look at the Texas law that says if you assist, well, okay, are we going to sue Uber for driving the woman to the clinic? I think it's going to fall under the same scope. He'll sue because he's running for senate, but I don't think there's a real. I don't think there's a real claim here. The way I read the stat, the way they're going to divide the money, nothing will go directly to a provider. And so you look at: does it meet the letter of the law? Does it meet the spirit of the law? I think it will certainly. I think it will meet the letter. Will it meet
3: the spirit? I don't know. All comes down to the judges. The one thing I've learned hosting this legal roundtable. Now, we've been talking about Missouri's uh, new law that bans abortion. And this led to a lot of attention being paid to a law that has been on the books, as far as I can tell, for quite some time in Missouri. Uh, the Riverfront Times, which I, full disclosure, am now affiliated with, helping to manage things over there. They had a blog post that went absolutely viral, hundreds of thousands of page views. MSNBC is talking about this everybody is talking about this that as this blog post accurately notes divorce lawyers say you cannot finalize your divorce in Missouri if you're pregnant this is apparently part of Missouri law and something that people other than divorce lawyers really didn't talk about until recently now a lot of people are alarmed by this Sarah Swadish do you think they should be able to get divorced while pregnant well do you think people should be alarmed that the law says you can't if I were in a marriage,
2: I would want out. So, yeah, I find that troubling. But I understand the policy perspective of the the child hasn't been born yet. Is it going to have special needs? Is that going to uh, impact what alimony may look like? Is it – I mean, I understand the policy reason behind it. Um, would I want to be in that situation? No, absolutely not. You don't want to be tethered to someone. Um, but I suppose I understand it. But, you know, if I were in the legislature, I would change it. I would let the man or woman get out and then deal with custody issues after the fact.
3: Because you can still deal with things like child support after a final divorce decree. That's just not how Missouri does it, apparently. Brenda, as as far as you're concerned, is this something that is worth the legislature taking up, uh, all this outrage surrounding this?
0: Well, I think the, the question is, how much is the outrage in Missouri? Um... I, I really, as a lawyer, I sit back and go like, well, why can't you enter a preliminary decree or provide a decree and then rec- allow modification depending upon the circumstances? I mean, uh, when you're pregnant, things can happen. The child may end up not not being born alive. Sure. There might be issues about whose child is it, all of which need to be resolved. So, um it's the kind of thing where I was like, well, I, I'm not quite sure why we do that. I understand some of the policy considerations from the past that would have led to it, um, whether it's that compelling to revisit. I mean – I think that's an issue that a a woman might feel very strongly about.
3: Yeah. It's interesting. There has been a huge amount of outrage involving this issue. But as Brendan notes, uh, who knows how many of those hundreds of thousands of page views came from misery. If
2: I were a male, uh, I would be equally concerned if my wife cheated on me, I find out she's pregnant and it's not mine, I would want out as well. So I think it's regardless of whether it's a man or a woman, you're impacted.
3: Yeah. Well, we'll see if, if, if anything comes of this viral moment. Let's move away from the topic of abortion. There are other things happening in the court of law this month. Now, for four decades, the Homer G. Phillips Hospital was one of the nation's premier teaching hospitals for black physicians. And so some locals were outraged by a controversial developer's intention to give that same name to a three-bed health care facility that he's opening in North St. Louis. This is something that would be nothing like the original Homer G. Phillips Hospital. So now a group of nurses from the historic Homer G. Phillips Hospital are suing the developer of the new Homer G. Phillips Hospital. This is a guy named Paul McKee. They're alleging that using this name would be a trademark violation on the part of Paul McKee. Eric Banks, what's the gist
1: of this claim here? Well, first of all, Paul McKee is tone deaf by not appreciating the sentiments of the community. Um, One of the named defendants is Northside Urgent Care Hospital, Inc. Why don't you just call the hospital Northside Urgent Care Hospital, Inc.? Problem solved. Now, that being said, I believe that he's on the winning side of this lawsuit because I don't believe the nurses, the Homer G. Phillip Nurses Alumni, Inc. has standing to sue because— the whole idea of a trademark infringement is the use of the name is calculated to prevent to cause confusion. So that means that I can have a Homer G. Phillips um, dog food. I can have a Homer G. Phillips nightclub. I can have Homer G. Phillips, um, anything as long as it's not calculated to be confused, with the Homer G. Phillips Nurses Alumni Inc. Okay. So I don't think they have standing the That's suit. a
3: big obstacle for this suit. So you're saying, um, you know, it's not just a matter of could it be confused with this old hospital. Because of the fact it's the nursing association suing, they'd have to show there'd be confusion with their own trademark here. Right. Okay. Sarah, do you share that interpretation?
2: I disagree. I think the uh, the Alumni Association has a good argument uh this paul mckee was told in 2018-19 he he got all this tiff money and he's told hey you're not doing anything in north county and that is uh, tax increment financing help him put this project together thank you uh so they're saying you're not doing anything with the money and so he says "Uh, it's the homer g phillips three bed i think he sort of slaps it together nobody actually had the name homer g phillips trademarked so the alumni uh, uh community or association went and got it Filed the application in 2021. It was granted in May 2022. Lawsuit was filed a week ago. So I, I think Paul McKee just wasn't being particularly strategic because nobody had a trademark to that name, Homer G. Phillips. The Alumni Association went and got it. So they now own that name. Uh, if you look at what the trademarks look like, the, the sort of Polaroid test, put them up next to each other, they look identical. Uh, it's, 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 I think there is use, meaning the average individual, if I'm talking about Kleenex, I'm not going to get sued by Kleenex because I should use the word tissue. Or if I'm talking about Coke and I mean soda, I'm not going to get sued. So this isn't – I think there is sufficient use here, meaning they have slapped the name Homer G. Phillips Hospital up on this three-bed clinic. I think, I think the Nurses Association, because they fundraise, they market, they provide funds to people in the community for health care – uh, I think there is use I think uh, it is intended to confuse I mean the trademarks are identical the font is almost identical there's two crosses or two x's with the and they're interwoven they're identical I, I think there is use I think it is commercial activity and I think it is intended to confuse uh until they but until they went and got it trademarked last month I think they had a loser. Uh, But now
3: they actually went and got it. So I actually think they have a claim here. So so our our three-judge panel today, Brenda Talent, you're going to have to break this tie. Well, I I, I may not be particularly
0: helpful in breaking this tie because when I look at this, I think it's an interesting lawsuit. It's a factual one. If they go to jury, a St. Louis jury, given the sentiment, you know, maybe we want to take odds on what's going to happen. But what I found more interesting, because what Eric said really did puzzle me, Why is he so insistent upon using this name? Now, they've said they're going to add a 100-bed hospital, right? So they said – and by the way, just as an aside, as Show Me Institute, this is why you don't want these tax subsidies. Just – you really (laughs) don't. But putting that aside, I kept saying – Where's the money? You know, follow the money. Yeah, And I saw an article that said he had a couple of investors that are going to help build. And one of them, I thought, was a for-profit hospital association. And then so then me, being the cynic that I am, I'm wondering, are they planning on using Homer G. Phillips and planning a hospital in a lot of different urban areas? Because mm-hmm. why? Why would you continue to insist I don't care what the community says or how the community feels. I'm
3: gonna do this. Yeah, I mean, you have the mayor denouncing you, and you're still like, I am going to, I'm gonna. So I'm just confused. To use this. I'm
0: really curious.
3: Why? Yeah, this is something that I find myself wondering about, though. Is also the timing of this thing. I mean, Sarah, your theory of this is if he had gone ahead and just tried to trademark it himself back when he announced this plan, there's no way he'd be in this jam. He could have gotten this trademark, and then people who are upset about this name would really be
2: in a pickle. My pure specu- pure speculation is. He got all this TIFF money. He starts getting pressure to do something, and he says, oh, 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 don't worry. I'm doing it. Uh, I got this Homer G. Phillips clinic I'm starting. Three beds is is, is a joke. But, you know, he's getting pressure to do something, to spend the money, to build. So he tries to placate the people giving him pressure by calling it Homer G. Phillips, and it backfires on him. If he was really wanting to call it Homer G. Phillips, you would have looked into the trademark. You would have gone to the family and said, hey, this is a right of publicity issue. Can we buy the right from you? It doesn't appear he did any of that. And so I think, you know, he's sort of created his own hole. Mm -hmm. And I think he said he was going to do it, you know, and maybe he paid for some advertising
3: dollars and he doesn't want to lose those dollars. I don't know. I mean, hey, we're all talking about his three-bed hospital. I guess you can't buy that kind of publicity. I have a caller who has some thoughts on this developer, Paul McKee. Uh, This is Jerry from O'Fallon. Hey, Jerry, you're on St. Louis on the air.
1: Hi, I live in Winghaven. And years ago, on this very same show, uh, McGee was interviewed uh, about the area here and, and claimed it was something like over ninety percent developed, which it is not. Uh, and there have been a lot of areas that just he just kind of left and ran on to the next thing, which was of course the the property buying in North St. Louis, that he had a special law crafted exactly uh, to his advantage by the uh, legislature in Jefferson City. Um, He's just basically essentially a con man in my estimation.
3: Well, and that's Jerry's opinion. Just want to make that clear that that's that uh, that's not a legal term, even though we're talking on the legal roundtable. Certainly, there are other city officials who have voiced that same thing in the context of this discussion, and, and his track record certainly uh, could could use some scrutiny. So, Jerry, thank you for introducing that note of history here. We have just a few minutes left with our legal roundtable. Here's another lawsuit. It met its untimely end in federal court. We're talking again about Attorney General Eric Schmidt. He sued China. Uh, Uh, U.S. District Judge Stephen Limbaugh, that's a familiar name in Missouri, he wrote that federal law sets rules for when a sovereign foreign entity can be sued in U.S. courts. And he says those rules don't allow any part of the lawsuit filed by Eric Schmidt in April of 2020 to continue. I feel like this is one where people kind of predicted this suit could be in trouble. Eric, are you surprised to see this lawsuit against China fail?
1: By no means. No, I think Judge Limbaugh rendered the correct decision he rendered the only decision, um, you can't have individuals suing governments. I mean, a
3: Foreign governments. Yes. yeah,
1: It would be out of control.
3: Well, and as we talked about today, apparently it's very hard to sue our own government. Uh, In many of these cases, they they seem to have immunity for everything. But in this case, uh, there's some clear reasons why these rules would have been. Eric Schmidt says he will appeal. We've been talking about the Eighth Circuit a lot today. Sarah Swadish, do you think there's any chance the Eighth Circuit will see this one differently than Judge Limbaugh? Uh, I like to say that dog
2: don't hunt. It's not going anywhere. That's not getting off the ground. And I don't know any lawyer that is surprised by this decision. Um, no, it's it, what, what I found disappointing is the attorney general's office spent like twenty grand trying to get this thing served. Twenty grand trying to get interpreted for Chinese uh the foreign officials. Uh, it's just silly.
3: So in our final minute here, I guess just in the interest of, of mentioning that Eric Schmidt is not the only one filing uh, for, uh, running for U.S. Senate that's in the primary coming up next month, who's filing lawsuits. Mark McCloskey is suing the protest organizers that walked by his house and, frankly, in some ways you could say made him famous. He's suing Congresswoman Cory Bush, State Representative Rasheen Aldridge. He says they made threats and damaged property. He's now got a lawsuit over this. Eric Banks, what do you make of his
1: chances? Slim and none. <laughs> Another publicity stunt.
3: In our final minute, uh, Sarah, any thoughts on this one? Uh, I'm not particularly
2: offended by the lawsuit. If if this was an alt-right uh, protest and there were property damage, I would want those Organizers to be held responsible. So, to the extent that Corey Bush and the and the representative, other representative, were encouraging violence, encouraging property destruction, they should be held responsible. Now, I'm I'm with Eric. I don't think this thing's really going to get off the ground. But the lawsuit, in and of itself.
3: Um, I'm
2: not offended by.
3: Yeah, and certainly for this lawsuit to succeed, he'd have to show that there was violence, there was property damage. People who were at that protest would say, certainly not. Uh, But that, you know, that's a matter for the courts. Yeah, I think he said they broke his gate. Yeah, right, but that's not what, this is not about a broken gate. Yeah, this is not about a broken gate. This is about simponians. And it wasn't his
1: gate to begin with. It was the Neighborhood Association's gate.
3: That is an excellent point. I have to acknowledge a tweet we got from Bruce earlier in the show as we were talking in our legal roundtable. He said, quote, as long as we don't talk about McCloskey. Bruce, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, they brought me back. They gave me this microphone. I'm talking about the legal roundtable. It's a policy. I have to find a way to weave Mark McCloskey in, and I have done it today. So I want to thank my panel for being with me. Um, It's just been such a joy to pick their brains about the law. Uh, Eric Banks of Banks Law LLC, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And Sarah Swadish of the Law Office of Sarah Swadish, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Brenda Talent, CEO of the Show Me Institute, thank you for making the time to join us. I understand you just had a wedding in the family, still had time to read up on all these cases. You get the gold star today. Why, thank you. (laughs) And congratulations to your daughter. Thank you. This episode was produced by Danny Wysentowski and Sarah Fensky.
4: Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Avery. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio.
0: <laughs> Understanding starts here.